0: Your hosts have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates inside and
1: outside of the courtroom. Both partners are experienced trial attorneys who have been board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization.
0: Welcome back to For Better, Worse, or Divorce. I'm Jake Gilbreth. I'm here with Brian Walters. And for this episode, we're going to talk about restraining orders and protective orders in a divorce. And there, you know, a lot of times there's a confusion, even amongst lawyers, particularly non-family law, practicing lawyers, about the difference between a restraining order and a protective order. So family violence protective orders. So I think let's start first about talking about restraining orders, because that's the most common thing that you see in a divorce or a child custody case. So first and foremost, I think what's important to talk about, and Brian, you know this because you, you do a lot of Harris County cases. I do as well, but I know you're, you probably take more Harris County cases than I do. There, When a divorce is filed in certain counties, there's almost in every single case a restraining order entered. The Family Code authorizes when a divorce is filed a restraining order being issued by the court without the need, even uh, an affidavit ask, you know, supporting the request. It's just sort of standard restraining order that gets, gets issued in a divorce. And what that restraining order says, kind of the one that's authorized by the family code without any need for any special pleading or anything, is essentially what I tell clients is they don't be a jerk rules, right? It's like, don't hide money. Don't, Hide the kids, don't change the kids' enrollment in school, don't run off uh, out of the state of Texas with the kids, don't destroy things, don't sell things, really don't spend money unless it's for reasonable living expenses and for attorney's fees. And a lot of the form uh, restraint orders in some of these counties say don't have an unrelated adult, spend the night with the kids, you know, kind of common sense rules but it's legally titled a restraining order in the family code. And so when a divorce gets filed, there's this request for a restraining order in counties like Harris County, judge signs a restraining order. And then, you know, somebody gets served with the divorce petition. And then we get a lot of calls, Brian, of people that get served with those and go, oh my goodness, there's a restraining order against me. What did I do? I didn't do anything wrong. She must be, she or he must be saying that I'm violent or something like that. And then you look at it, it's like, no, that's that's standard in every single divorce in a county where there's not a standing order. We'll talk about standing orders in a second. Like these are just sort of standard rules that get put in place. It's called a restraining order in this situation, but it's normal, it's, it's non-controversial, and it's going to be turned into what's called temporary injunctions at a temporary orders hearing. It'll be made mutual. So that's kind of, you know, lowest on the Richter scale restraining order. We'll talk about other ones in a second, but that's kind of the standard one that gets issued in in counties like Harris County that don't have a standing order. So because Brian, can you explain what is how some counties have dealt with this through a standing order so there's not a restraining order issued when the case is filed?
1: Okay, so because restraining orders are, as you said, are unnecessary most of the time, they are also a lot of work for the courts. And frankly, there are a lot of work for the lawyers, which means more fees for people. A lot of counties have put in place what instead of what's called a standing order, which is an order that says all those things you just discussed, basically don't be a jerk, don't do anything dramatic, don't run off with the money, the kids, anything like that. Put them in place and they go into effect against both parties. And so one of the differences is, this is a restraining order can be against both parties, but it is often just against the party, uh, the other side. So it's an attempt to avoid all of that extra work, all the questions about it and, and the unfair, or unequal application of it. It's also... They've been thought through carefully, and so sometimes courts – I mean these restraining orders are long. A lot of times you have 30 or 40 court parts of them, and so they've thought these standing orders through carefully to not cause unexpected problems. good example was a case an uh, in intake I had this week where parties weren't married. They had a kid. They agreed back with the final order back in April, establishing Dad as the uh, as the Dad and um, allowing Mom to have custody and to reside anywhere in the United anywhere in the world, really. Without there's no domicile restriction. Very specifically, that and so that was in April. In May, she told Dad I moving into North Carolina. In June, he filed a petition to stop that, even though he'd agreed to it uh, two months ago. And it was in Dallas, which has a standing order, Dallas County, and so, and it was very carefully worded. It didn't just say, like you said, "Don't leave the state with with the kid." It said, "Don't leave the state with the kid unless you have the written permission of the other side." Which he actually texted her; it was okay at one point, and then I guess he withdrew it. But it also said, or unless you have an order that specifically allows you to do it, which she does, she has one from April. So. You know, where a normal restraining order might have said just don't leave the state with the kid and then it had the effect of changing the underlying order and forcing her into court to now get a hearing to you know, which could take two months or whatever to overturn that. So those are the multiple reasons that you have standing orders. Sometimes I'm surprised that there aren't and they aren't that way in every county, but from what I understand, some judges think that they're either unenforceable or unconstitutional potentially, or maybe too heavy handed. When people just maybe don't don't even want those restrictions on each other, so that's what you have with standing orders, yeah. which I think are more common than not, and probably increasingly common, is my my observation.
0: Yeah, it, even the more it used to be the more rural counties wouldn't have them. And then Harris County didn't have them, but now even the more rural counties are sort of picking them up uh, and doing it. And yeah, that, that deal about the, dom- you know, don't leave the state of Texas that was fixed in recent years because there's sort of forum standing orders used to say, don't leave the state of Texas, which is actually, that was a problem with prior standing orders, right? Because it had the effect of changing the underlying order with no hearing or anything. So that's been fixed in most counties. So back to the restraining orders and those counties that you don't have a standing order or sometimes, frankly, you have a lawyer that practices in a county that has a restraining order, doesn't realize uh, he or she's practicing in a county that has a standing order. And so you see restraining order language in your divorce petition. And again, people kind of, you know, freak out, they see it, and they think they've done something wrong. And, you know, a lawyer looks at it and goes, nah, this is this is normal stuff. It's for everybody. That, again, that's the sort of the low level restraining order. Then there's kind of a more uh, substantial restraining order that's uh, not just the, the standard in every single divorce, where there's what we call sort of extraordinary circumstances, right? There's something specific that's going on with this family that needs the court to make an emergency order without the other side being either even notified. And it's under Rule 680 of the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure where the court can essentially put in place an emergency order without the other side even knowing about it. Now, it has two things have to happen with that. It has to be, one, supported by an affidavit, right? You can't just go down to the court and say, judge... Enter an order right now that says dad can't have any access to the kids because we want it and just trust us and the judge side. It has to have an affidavit attached alleging facts that essentially tell the court if these facts are true, and there will be a hearing to determine if they are not, but right now, as a judge, I'm looking at this affidavit. If these facts are true, this is an emergency. This is a dangerous situation, what have you. And I'm going to enter an order right now that restrains the other side from doing something. And But I have to have an affidavit to do that. And two, there has to be a hearing set, and that hearing has to take place within 14 days. They can be extended, to Rule six eighty can be extended one time for good cause, uh, or of course by agreement. But you got to have an affidavit, you got to have a hearing right away. So an example of a restraining order in divorce would be husband tells wife, "I'm filing for a divorce," and you know he starts moving money overseas, you know something like that. And so wife goes in, fills out an affidavit, says, so "My husband says he's filing for divorce." Look, Judge. He's taking money. You know, he told me he's in this text message. He's going to send all the money to his family overseas, and I'm afraid he's going to do that. So, Judge, enter a restraining order right now, without even notifying the other side. That freezing the accounts or uh, prohibiting specifically those transfers, or prohibiting the sale of this house, or what have you. Right, and the judge can sign an order. It gets served on the other side, and then that order is in place for 14 days, unless it's dissolved by the court and 14 days until there's a hearing. And then, you know, a kid situation would be, you know, judge, she got a DWI with the kids in the car two weeks ago. She used the pictures of her drinking. I'm filing for a divorce. She's not safe around the kids. So based on this affidavit, you know, without even laying the other side no, enter this emergency order that says that she can't be around the kids or she can't drive the kids or what have you. And the judge could sign that if uh, based on the affidavit, that it supports the request. That's a restraining order that gets put in place, you get set for a hearing, and then in 14 days, there's going to be a hearing where the judge determines, you know, was this appropriate or not. So that's, you know, that's going to be very stressful for both sides, right? Like if you're going in and there's an emergency and you're asking for a restraining order, you know, that's stressful, right? Because you got to support it by affidavit and evidence. Of course, it's really stressful for the other side because, Brian, how many times have you had a situation where you get hired and there's a restraining order issued against, you know, your client? And, you know, you get the affidavit, you see what they told the judge without you there, and they're coming into the consult going, this is all BS, uh, or 95% of it's BS, or it's just blatant lies, or it's not true. Like that, I mean, we almost get those more often than actually legitimate restraining orders sometimes it feels like. And I think you were dealing with that just as recently as last night. So what's, what's that situation look like?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, that was even worse because it didn't have the required affidavit and somehow the judge signed it anyway. So that was exciting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you you initially read these affidavits a lot of times. I often read them. I'll get the documents before I do a consult, you know, and so often you'll read them and you say, holy cow, you know, the, this person I'm about to talk with, wow, they've got they've got some issues and you start talking to them and they're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. I've, you know, I have... You know, one beer a night um, at dinner, I'm, I haven't, I've never been drunk or I've never been arrested for drinking and driving or whatever. And the other side's accusing them of being, a, you know, a rampant alcoholic or something like that. So all those things are concerning. That's absolutely the case. And um, you just have to you know, kind of take it. I mean, it's the other side's got to prove if there's those problems. So you can go into court at times and you can ask the court to dissolve the temporary restraining order before or sooner and before there's a hearing. Although generally, if it's within 14 days, by the time it's been signed, served, they've hired you, now you're going to have a hearing in the near future, you usually, that's probably about the right amount of timing. Um, but I have seen them get dissolved or attempted to get dissolved. That's always an option as well.
0: Yeah. It's a frustrating time, that sort of gap between you get served to the restraining order and then and it could be a week or two weeks before you have a hearing. I mean, we did one a month ago. I mean, I was we actually got hired. The restraining order got signed hearing set within 14 days. I think we got hired eight days later, or something like that. But it's a frustrating time, right? I mean, we're looking at it, the clients looking at us it, like, this is just a load of crap. I and mean, it was. And, you know, within four or five days, I mean, there was three, I think three witnesses referenced in the affidavit of things that they were supposedly going to come in and say. We had all three of them subpoenaed. All three were ready to testify and to come in and say that is... Not true. We had recordings, we had an expert lined up, we had everything within four or five days and just blew it out of the water. But it was a frustrating time though for the client that really frustrating. And she'll probably get her fees back at the end, but it was really frustrating because, you know, if you're a court, you know, what's, what's difficult is if you're defending against a restraining order, if you're a court and you get an affidavit, even if your antenna's up, that this seems a little embellished. You've got to take it as true, right? You've got it. They're going to be more careful than not in most situations. And they're going to, you know, no judge wants to kind of ignore a claim of danger and then find out that it's true and they haven't stepped in. She hasn't stepped in and and done something. So, you know, both sides, it's it's hard on both sides. And again, it's hard on the side if you're asking for the restraining order. You got to kind of put your case out there. A lot of times, you know, we get hired when there's a need for a restraining order, a protective order. We'll talk about that in just a second. And I mean, we're cranking out pleadings that day. I mean, there's times when people come in and hire us at 9 a.m. in the morning, and by two o'clock, we're in front of a judge with a you know multi-page affidavit and reports and pictures or exhibits or whatever, asking for a restraining order. So it's hard and stressful on both sides, but really important because that's a, you know, until a judge can have a hearing from filing a divorce or custody case to when there's a hearing, a temporary order scene, that's a really high stress, dangerous time that a lot of stuff can happen unless it's addressed appropriately by the lawyer. So that's restraining orders. And people get restraining orders confused with a different topic, which we could do a whole podcast on, but we'll sort of talk briefly about what it, uh, what it looks like. And that's protective orders. So a restraining order restrain somebody from, from doing something, like maybe being around the kids or driving with the kids or moving money or selling something or what have you. That's a restraining order. Then there's a protective order. When there's family violence in place, the court can issue a protective order. And there's really three types of protective orders that we see. The first one that that see, we see is something that's called an emergency protective order or a magistrate's protective order. So when somebody's arrested for family violence outside the family court system, the magistrate can issue what's called an emergency protective order. So let's say the husband's arrested for assaulting the wife; he's incarcerated, you know, he's taken down jail. They'll issue an emergency protective order that the wife has that says. For 60 days or 90 days, here's the order. He can't be around her or, or maybe around the kids or near the house or what have you. That's outside the family court system. And usually you see it when there's been an arrest. Um, usually that's that's when you see it. And that's outside of our system. That's in the criminal court system. And, and so that's a different issue than kind of what we see in the family law system. And then when people come to us, the family code authorizes the filing of a protective order. And that's something that we have. So, you know it sometimes and that's under uh chapter, Title 4 excuse me Title 4 of the of the Texas Family Code what we're dealing with and sometimes there's an emergency protective order an EPO issued by the magistrate a lot of times there's not right cuz a lot of times with family violence the police haven't been called or charges haven't been brought or what have you so uh, in that situation there's two protective orders the two types of protective orders under Title 4 of the Family Code one and in, in all of it's filed under an application for protective order. But the first thing that you see when a protective order is filed is most of the time when a protective order is filed, there's issued what there's a request for. It's called an ex parte protective order. So you have your EPO admission by the magistrate. And then in the family court system, when you file for protective order, there's, there's what's called an ex parte protective order. So I've been talking a lot, Brian, tell us kind of what an ex parte protective
1: order is. So ex parte just means sort of what you mentioned with restraining orders that that only one side gets to present their their version of events via an affidavit, and um, and then a the protect ex parte protective order then means it's also temporary in length; it's shorter in length, and it and it will and the the goal is to be protective rather than to restrain things. And some some of that overlaps, right? I mean, restraining orders typically say don't harass in a way or whatever the other side don't threaten anything like that but protective orders are typically much more the ex parte ones are much more specific about a dangerous or threatening behavior that can involve restrictions on gun ownership they can involve restrictions on where you can and cannot go so don't go near their workplace don't go near the home that kind of thing so it it's generally a different focus there's generally not a financial focus there's actually provisions in those that are that are protective of pets, which is a relatively new thing. So a little different focus. Sometimes you can obtain, you know, in less dangerous, less threatening situations, some of those same protections in a restraining order. But there are certain cases where you just need a protective order, especially when there's been you know, recent violence or threats of violence. There's just no there's no uh, way around that if you want to protect your client. And by the way, those protective orders can be protective of not only the person filing them, but also other family members. Um, as I mentioned, even pets, but even children. And, and that can get a little confusing at times because if there's a, if you have a child with somebody, the protective order is against you, married or, or otherwise. You might want to be protective of the children if you think they're at risk, which kind of affects custody, right? It, which is more of family court. And usually the courts figure out how to do those things without them overlapping each other. But same concept. It's it's issued with only one side of the story. We certainly have plenty of them that come in that are totally valid and 100% are needed. Others that come in that we defend and you read these things and you're like, you know, that's, you're grasping at straws or you're making stuff up, you're exaggerating situations. And, uh, those are real, they're, and they're real serious. I mean, protective orders are not; it's not a criminal offense if it's if it's granted, but it has it has some of the same effects, right? I mean, it goes into a, a database where just a restraining order and a divorce, you know, the, the sheriff doesn't know that it's been filed or whatnot, versus a protective order. So it's a serious thing. Um, and sometimes you get hit with both of them. That is uh, that is not unusual either, that you get a restraining order and a divorce or a custody case and then a protective order and a, and a protective order case. And maybe there's been an arrest, too. So now you've really got three cases going on at the same time. It can be quite the situation when those occur.
0: Yeah. And extremes on both ends, right? I mean, there's like you said, there's ones are absolutely legitimate, needed you know, dangerous situations for the spouse, and the kids, parents, family members. And, you know, unfortunately, it's it, we all hate to think that this happens, but we see it all the time. Unfortunately, there's situations where it's just not true or it's embellished or it's, you know, or frankly, there's situations where it's both sides or everybody's got something they need to work on. But it goes back to that important thing is with the ex parte protective order, it has a same thing like a restraint order. It has to set a hearing and you will have a hearing. It's actually 20 days under the ex parte protective order statute, but usually I see courts try to do it within 14 days. Same deal, you have the right to go and request the court to dissolve an ex parte protective order, but there's still this sort of frustrating gap between the ex parte, you know, other side's not notified. Order being issued, and then there's a hearing. and There's an evidentiary hearing. All this stuff is always going to result in evidentiary hearing. There's not going to be a a more permanent order that's ever issued by a court without there being an evidentiary hearing where both sides are heard. And so that brings us to the third type of protective order: is your EPO. That's just your emergency protective order outside the family court system. Magistrate issues. There's your ex parte protective order that's in the family court system that can get issued with the support of an affidavit right off the bat when an application for protective orders is filed. And then once you have that evidentiary hearing, which again is typically 14 days after an ex parte protective orders granted or requested, most of the time granted, then you have a, a protective order hearing where there's evidence heard on both sides. And then at the end of that, if the court finds, and it's two prongs, if the court finds that, that family violence has occurred, protective orders, we're always talking about family violence, family violence has occurred, And that it's likely to occur in the future. It's two prongs. And a lot of times we forget that second prong. But that's if the court finds those two things, then the court can issue a protective order. There's also a stalking protective order in the code of criminal procedure that you can do that has some that essentially if there's stalking, which is a type of family violence, the court can also do a protective order. Usually you see the family violence has occurred and likely to occur in the future. The court finds that, then they can issue a protective order up to two years. In some instances, it's serious bodily injury or there's been more than one protective order, various instances in the court can actually go beyond two years. But the most typical you'll see a protective order in place for two years. But you gotta find those two prongs. Family violence has occurred, it's likely to occur in the future. If that's found by the court. Protective order can be issued, and that that's a really serious order. It's going to have some really specific restrictions on the person against whom the protective order is issued. It could require counseling. There's going to be provision that the person who has the protective order against them can't have guns. It could affect custody, obviously. It affects where you, people can be around each other. It's a really serious order, and it's enforceable by not only contempt of court, but it's enforceable by arrest and criminal charges. So if you violate a protective order or an ex parte protective order or a two-year protective order or EPO, that has criminal implications. So they're very serious orders on on both sides. The person requesting it, the person defending against it, probably the most serious thing that we see in the family law context. So all that to say, you know, it's there. obviously a need for the procedure to be able to get protective orders, obviously the need for there to be a hearing so both sides can be heard. Um, And then the court's going to do what she thinks is best at the end uh, after hearing all the evidence. But as you can imagine, kind of it all comes down to is it's important to take these things really seriously. And and frankly, hiring a lawyer that has experience with this, either way you're looking at it. If you're looking for applying for a protective order or defending against a protective order, again, there's, there's not much more serious things that we do. Um, on both sides in the family law context, so that's kind of the overview. Restraining orders—you'll see there's kind of your really basic standard restraining orders, up to your more extreme that exclude specific acts based on specific requests to the court, and then you have your other world, which is your protective orders that can have both a criminal and a civil component of it. So that's big, broad overview. Of course, you know there's there's more to it, but I think that covers a broad overview of those two topics so that's what we have for today and as always if you like what you heard please leave us a review and feedback is always helpful for us if you have any feedback or you want to ask questions or you want to suggest a topic we'd love to hear from you you can email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com and i'm jake gilbreth here with brian walters and thank you all for listening for information about the topics covered in today's episode and more you can visit our website at waltersgilbreth.com Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of For Better, Worse, or Divorce, where we post new episodes every first and third Wednesday. Do you have a topic you want discussed or a question for our hosts? Email us at podcast at Thanks for listening. Until next time.